Okay, friends, this is Tom. Outrage and Optimism needs you. Here is Mr. Clay Carnell to explain how. Thanks, Tom. Hey, everyone. Clay here, producer. Great news. We have the opportunity to win a podcast award. Three, actually. Outrage and Optimism is nominated in three categories for the People's Choice Podcast Awards. It's the longest-running podcast awards event and a very high honor because the winners are chosen by the people. That's you. And if you're listening on Friday, July 31st, today is the last day to nominate us for the awards. So here's what we need you to do. Go to podcastawards.com, type in your name, and then choose outrage and optimism in the three categories we're nominated in. So those three categories are people's choice, news and politics, and government and organizations. Whoa, Clay. Yes? You know, could could you repeat that again? Because... Our listeners wouldn't necessarily have, you know, some writing instrument in front of them. Mm. So can you just repeat what you just said now that we've all sort of gone for our iPads or pencils and paper or something? Yeah. So here's what we need you to do. Go to podcastawards.com. There's a link in the show notes. Type in your name and then choose outrage and optimism in the three categories that we're nominated in. So those are people's choice news and politics, and government and organizations. Please. I was going to say please as well. I mean, there's a couple of English people here who are like, it's like where's that please? I'm like, just please, itching for the please. Yeah, where is this? Please, 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 please. Por favor, por favor. Paul, it's no longer dignified. Clay, back to you. <laughs> yeah, so really simple. Podcastawards.com. Type in your name. Nominate us. Today, Friday, is the last day to nominate. It's really quick. 30 seconds, in and out, done. 30 seconds. All right. And now, a personal appeal from Paul Dickinson. It would be awfully kind of you if you would do that. It would be dreadfully nice. We would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Paul's first job was as a professional apologizer at Harrods. When people got things wrong, they'd phone up and they'd get Paul. And he'd say, I'm, I'm so sorry. So, Paul? You would actually ask for the managing director. You'd say, speak to the managing director. Something's blown up and killed my cat. And I would say, I am so sorry uh, to hear about that. We will send you. We will send you a new cat. Do I really? Do I really sound that mean? Am I back to the point? We need your help. Everything's in the show notes. Here's the episode. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week. Fear and hope in communicating climate change and driving change. We speak to author David Wallace Wells and we have music from Billy Bragg. Thanks for being here. Okay, so I have to say with great disappointment that your podcast while I was away were brilliant. What's the disappointment? <laughs> the disappointment is I assumed I was essential to this process and it turns out I'm not. Now, now, now Tom, <laughs> you know, first of all, no one is essential to anything. We should all ah, know. There's a great however, truth. However, your quality of broadcasting, as David no. Attenborough would say, <laughs> is definitely not reachable without you. Well, the other thing, thank you very much, very sweet of you. I was also disappointed. I've been a massive Attack fan since I was about 16 years old. I'm gone for two episodes after 60 episodes. And you have massive Attack on the show. 
We were waiting for you to disappear to do that. <laughs> they were great. They were fascinating people, really nice people, deeply dedicated. Also, I think, stand out. Uh, shout has to go out to Christiana for doing uh, the Tom broadcast uh, impersonation. I found her version of an English accent just deeply, <laughs> deeply entertaining. Did you know? Well, you know, you haven't heard the last of it, actually. You can hear the, com- the complete contempt she has in her voice, which is actually... A- it stands out for miles. I, I, I thought of it as a cross between affection and contempt, but maybe it's just contempt. No, no, no. It's just a testament to the rarefied atmosphere that British people I live can't in. possibly think who you're imitating. <laughs> and it's not me. <laughs> Ah, there's a little bit of uh, okay. Well, what I'm noticing is that uh, is that Christiana certainly has got more of an insight into the underbelly of British culture than I, I thought she might do. So there you are. Yes, indeed, and more well, access. Given given the fact that I lived there recently for two years, and also <laughs> that I went to a school last century, well, you would think that something would have actually got stuck on me don't you think <laughs> no, no, how I, uh, have you both been i had a lovely break switzerland was amazing uh we went through yeah, on well the train. we've been working really hard you working? while you've been <laughs> while you've been trekking in the mountains of switzerland I, I know that this won't come as a surprise to most people but you can drive onto the euro tunnel train and go straight through you put your car on the train it's amazing drive on the train go straight through drive down to switzerland we had an amazing time it was walked in the hills dragged the kids up and down the mountains it was really lovely the nature in Switzerland is amazing. Beautiful. Now, sorry, yeah. just so that you don't get out of the habit, do you know what Costa Rica's nickname is? Uh, the Switzerland of Central America. Oh, okay. Really? Yes. What, what exactly chocolates? is Swiss the about cuckoo clocks. Costa Rica? It must be the cuckoo clocks. No, it's the beauty no. of the nature, the mountains, <laughs> all of that. Anyway. That's enough for the Costa Rica piece. You're in the latest edition of How Great Costa Rica Is. Maybe Mm. you should lobby for that compliment to be reversed. Switzerland could become known as the Costa Rica of Europe. Well, they can't really aspire to that because they have an army. Costa Rica. Do they have an army? Do you know what? Everyone has a gun. They have an army, so they're not as good as we are. Everyone has a gun in in Switzerland. They have more guns than any other country in the world because the government sends everyone a gun. And they've not been invaded for 600 years, so keep an eye out. The government sends everyone a gun? Yep. Is that really true, Paul? It or may you, not be. It, I mean, I, we look. appreciate, we're grateful for you for making it up because it's interesting, but is it actually true? What's going to happen after this is Clay is going to Google it and if I'm right, it's going to stay in and if I'm wrong, it's going to get chopped out. How about that? Okay, Clay, at this point, please insert whether or not Paul is telling the truth. Okay, cue the music. Welcome back to our very first segment of fact-checking Paul Dickinson a segment we should have started earlier and yet still don't have time for. Okay, so in regards to Switzerland, the statement in question is... The government sends everyone a gun. Okay, true or not true? It's time to fact check Paul Dickinson. According to a Business Insider article written in 2018, all quote-unquote fit men are required to serve in Switzerland's mandatory military service. Women may voluntarily serve as well. Those that serve in the militia are trained and handed a weapon that they can keep until they're done serving. So even though military service in Switzerland is required for men and every military personnel is issued a gun, no, the government doesn't send everyone a gun. Link to read the article in the show notes. Thanks for joining us on this week's edition of Fact Checking Paul Dickinson. 
Right. Moving on with the conversation. Um, what should we talk about this week? Well, do we not have David Wallace-Wells, author of Uninhabitable Earth, as someone we're going to interview in a Indeed. One of the best books I've ever read. I when you say, say best, can you just tell me what you mean, Tom? Best researched, best written, most compelling, most persuasive. Okay, so shall we just, shall I just bravely step out of laughy jokey land into oh my golly gosh land? <laughs> For anyone who's not British, that's not an expression of jo- joviality, it's an expression uh, uh, of seriousness. Uh, 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 uh. Thank you. Thank you for the translation. <laughs> the oh my golly gosh land doesn't sound that serious on the I mean, face of it. No, it doesn't is... sound very serious. Yeah, so... <sighs> All right, I'll give you a little bit from Poetry Corner. Are you ready? Oh, God. Is that survive the break? I'm afraid so. Are you ready? Okay, please carry bit, on. This is a little bit of Elliot, and I'm going to try and, okay. bring, I'm going to try and bring us down to where we need to go. Are you okay, ready? Please. There are flood and drought over the eyes and in the mouth, dead water and dead sand contending for the upper hand. The parched, eviscerate soil gapes at the vanity of toil, laughs without mirth. This is the death of earth. Are we there yet? Yeah. Well, well, yeah, thank you for, um, yeah, bringing us down. Um, All right, so I'm going to ask you both a question I've never asked you. How many avoidable deaths in 2100 or 2150 if we get this right or if it goes wrong? Have you ever asked yourself the number? Well, the number actually is in the 1.5 degree report because the 1.5 degree report that was published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change compares those two scenarios, right? The scenario of a world that goes to 1.5 degree temperature rise or one that goes to two. And the very sobering three facts that come out of there is that a world that goes to two degrees will have two to three times as much physical infrastructure destruction, two to three times as much biodiversity species destruction, and two to three times as much human misery slash deaths. So there you are. It is a huge difference whether we get this sort of right, because we're not going to get it totally right, because we're already condemned to some warming, or if we get this fatally wrong. Okay. Well, look, thank you, Christiana. I mean, I, you didn't give me a number, but you, you painted a picture and, and we can extrapolate. I'm going to give you um, a COVID statistic, um, COVID-19. You know, people talk about, it's difficult to count. People are talking about 650,000 deaths. Maybe that massively underestimates it. Maybe it's a million, maybe it's 2 million. But I just want to point out to you, everybody, that the population of the world rises by about 80 million a year. Okay, so it's kind of gone up by about 40 million since the pandemic started. And I think our responsibility to those people, those, those you know, tens of millions, you know, nearly 100 million being born every year, is really the heart of this discussion that, that we're having about the seriousness of the climate change problem. And f- frankly, w- you know, I'm going to use a silly phrase, why we're not screaming. I mean, really? Um I mean, I know we're not screaming because we have to be sensible about this, but I'm, I'm going I'm to hand you both a question. We know how serious this is. Why are our governments not talking to us about this? Why are world leaders not going on the television, you know, on the same day to warn the public uh, about this extraordinary kind of nightmare that we're in? Sorry, had to say it. 
So, I mean, I think it's a good question, but I think that to, to sort of step back a bit from that question, you know, and there's been a lot happening this year. I mean, Greta and some of the other school strikers just came out with this statement where they said, and they've said this for a long time, but this is this petition to the EU that's now had a couple of hundred thousand signatures, that you can't solve a crisis unless you treat it as a crisis. And that we've seen with the coronavirus pandemic, that it has been treated as a crisis. And you can discuss the response to that and whether that's been coherent or not and whether that's been successful. But I think the question that you're pointing to is when you are in a position of authority of any kind, at a community level, in a business, in a country, you know, wherever it is, in a company, how do you get people to make meaningful, lasting change that takes a long period of time to deliver? And there's the reality of the situation that you can communicate that will alarm and frighten people, and that has to be part of it. But I think the other thing we've learned over the last 20 years on climate is that's not the entirety of it. You both have to communicate urgency, reality, which precipitates fear because the worst case scenario is really alarming. But you also have to find a way to communicate some grit, some determination, some possibility to change the trajectory, change where you are. I mean, Paul, you've talked to me for years about this moment of clarity at the beginning of the Second World War where Churchill changed the story I talked about in my TED Talk, you know, where it went from this moment of quaking in fear, in, in the UK at least, quaking in fear and trepidation to absolute determination, fight them on the beaches and in the hills and in the streets. The change between those two had nothing to do with how the war was going and the likelihood of winning it. It was a change of perception and attitude. Both were accompanied by data and evidence that the Nazi war machine was much more powerful and was likely to overrun Europe. But there was the world of difference between those two. So how do you both incorporate the reality, the frightening reality that you're facing, but not submit to it as an individual? and not mm. decide that you're unable to actually meet it with the whole of your humanity and the whole of your determination to try and make a change, no matter how dark the outlook. Um, thank you, Tom. Have we not recently read a book exactly <laughs> about that topic? Could it? Could the title be um, something about the future that the we choose? The future we choose. Oh, which yeah, is, yeah, it's, yeah, in yeah. My, it's in my bedside list. I haven't quite gotten to okay, it. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, good summary of the book. Um Yes, I mean that there therein lies the challenge. Um but but Paul, I'm going to react to that in a second, but Paul, you uh you were correct in saying that I didn't give you a number. Actually, the 1.5 degree report does give us a number as I said. And what the 1.5 degree report says that if we go to a 2 degree world as compared to a 1.5 degree world, we will be exposing up to several hundred million people more by 2050. It's not even by 2100, right? By 2050, we will be exposing them more to heat, hunger, poverty, all of which have a high probability of leading to death. So there you are. That's the number. Several hundred million more deeply affected humans by 2050. Now, to Tom's point, I recently read and I don't know if you guys if you guys saw this, but I recently read a very interesting article by Simon Sinek who is a British/US yeah, citizen. He's an author, he's a speaker, he's several books. 
And he um, wrote a very interesting article about mistakes we've been making communicating climate change. How can we communicate climate change in a more effective way, read effective as being a precipitator of change, behavior change, decision change, mm -hmm. investment change. Yeah, that is effective. Yeah. And so he makes three points that I think are very interesting. He says, first of all, what is this nonsense about calling it global warming and climate change? It just sounds way too um, lackluster. It sounds, you know, like something that, okay, well, that's fine, but something very acceptable. So he's saying, forget that. Call it climate cancer because everybody understands what a cancer is in a body. And we should understand that at the global systemic level, what we have running through the global veins and the global organisms and the global ecosystems is a cancer, a cancer that is curable, but it is accelerating mm -hmm. very, very quickly. So I thought that was interesting. I've never heard the term global cancer. I've heard hmm. climate crisis, climate emergency, but climate cancer was a new term for me. The second point that he makes is what is this nonsense about saving the planet? And we've said this, you know, ad nauseum on this podcast. The planet will continue even if we stupidly decide to, you know, commit harakiri and um, as a human population go into total demise here. What he's saying is forget about saving the planet, personalize it. Be very clear about the fact that what is really here at stake is your family. Not save the planet, save your family. Make it much more personal, mm -hmm, much more, mm -hmm. you know, directly impactful. And the third point that he makes is that it's very difficult for people to think in absolutes. Even this, you know, 1.5, 2 degrees versus 2 degrees, those are absolutes that are very, very difficult to understand. And the time frames of climate make it very difficult to understand, let alone to act upon. So he's saying it is much more important rather than emphasizing the absolutes, which are there, it's much more important to emphasize the momentum, and here's where his positive comes in, the momentum that we are already witnessing and that we can accelerate. We should be much more messaging the fact that we're moving in the right direction and be very clear about the specific actions that everyone can take, whether you're an individual, a government, a corporation, whatever. So not far away from, you know, what we have been um, adhering to uh, with the book and with this podcast and with so many of our wonderful guests on the, on the podcast, the one thing that really struck me was this piece about climate cancer. Mm. Well, how do you all react to that? I love the urgency of it. Um, you know, uh, you know, people. You know, I, I, maybe I, I don't get round to fixing, you know, something in my house or whatever. Uh, but somebody tells me that I have a cancer growing. I run to the doctor and I say, you know, like we we got to deal with this right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's his point. Mm. No, I agree with that. I mean, I, that's it's it's. I have a mixed reaction to it because on the one hand, it's so emotive, right? I mean, cancer, particularly for people who are suffering with it at the time. It's such a terrifying thing, right? And we all live in fear of the fact that one day, looking at the statistics, we'll go to the doctor and they'll say, you know, this is, you've got this thing and it's likely to be cancer for a significant number of us. And, and there, there's a terror of that. But that's the point that is being made. 
is yes. that this requires, you know, and if you get cancer, your life doesn't stop. You keep doing other things, but that becomes your priority. And you say, within the context of all of these other things that I have to do and my responsibilities and me dealing with my loved ones and, you know, everything else, this is now my priority and everyone understands that. So that is an interesting, whether or not that word can take on, I can definitely see that that's the spirit that it has to be brought through with. And interestingly, that sort of also takes us beyond this narrative that can sometimes be constructed between, do you communicate with fear or do you communicate with hope? In a way, part of the deeper insight into what you just said, Christiana, is people respond to cancer in different ways. Some people yep, respond yep. to it with fear. Some people respond to it with hope. It remains cancer. And that's sort of, to a degree, down to the individual rather than down to the doctor. The doctor's job is to tell you what the situation is, what the reality is, how you can move forward beyond that. And if someone wants to respond to it with, with fear and terror, that's up to them, right? And if they respond to, respond to it with hope and I can get through this, fine. I don't know the statistics as to whether either is actually better for survival rates with cancer, um, but it's not up to us to judge how people respond to those different scenarios. I think the point that he was making about the cancer is what is really important is the clarity of the diagnosis. Yeah. Right? Let it get a very, very clear diagnosis that someone, that everyone, not someone, that everyone can relate to so that we understand what we're facing. And then, of course, you open up for everyone to react the way they they want. Yeah. Um, and that's where his other two points come in about, you know, focusing on the momentum and, and having very clear actions. Because we have discussed on this podcast how actually taking action and doing something specific, whatever it is, changing your old refrigerator or planting a tree or, you know, using your bike more or whatever. And any action that you take already starts you in feeling more empowered. Um, so I think he would agree with that. Yeah. I think, and this, this isn't a sort of a criticism of delivering reality in the face of climate change, but if I have a concern about it, it's, um, Christiana, when we were writing our book, one of the books that really influenced us was Hope in the Dark or Hope in the Dark and A Paradise Built in Hell, both by Rebecca Solnick, which are outstanding books if you get a chance to read them. And what they demonstrate is that, um, particularly um, Paradise Built in Hell, demonstrates that in the most extreme scenarios where humans are faced with the most terrible situations, they will naturally respond with love and humility and kindness and generosity and support to others. The only scenario in which humans don't respond like that is when they think others are going to treat them with, a, with oppression and violence, and then they preempt it. So there's a psychological situation in these things where if you begin to be fearful of the future, then you can, or there's, there's mm. evidence, that humans can preempt that fear with aggression of their own. And then you can very quickly enter a spiral, which very quickly looks like most of human history. So that's not to say we shouldn't give people reality, but it's just a, a, something that, a, that concerns me about that direction. Now, one person, of course, who has understood both of those, and we should just mention because it's very sadly he passed just recently, is Congressman John Lewis. So what an inspiring person. I mean, his entire life was about justice and about service and about engagement and trying to make the world a better place and fearless, we actually mentioned completely fearless man. fearless fearless man and if you and those who have a long enough memory 
our very first episode before we talked to David Attenborough, we talk about the fact that he actually said at one point, fairly recently, remembering the activism that he was part of with Martin Luther King more than 50 years ago, he said, I have learned in the intervening period that there is room for both outrage and anger and optimism and love. So he very much gets that dynamic of those two pieces. Um, and and what a what a loss that we've lost him. But, you know, great that he, he had a long life. So it feels now that we should go to our interview. I mean, this is a man I have enormous respect for, such an erudite, thoughtful person. He is mm. a journalist by background. Um, he is from uh, New York Magazine, where he's deputy editor. Um, in 2017, he wrote an article for New York Magazine called The Uninhabitable Earth that I remember when it came out, and it really just arrived like a train, really, in the climate narrative, because it really drew out these very frightening potential scenarios we were facing. Uh, and he faced real criticism for that, which he weathered, and then wrote this book, The Uninhabitable Earth, that has just been a global bestseller and has really changed the narrative on climate. He's known for being alarmist. He's also a realist, as you'll hear. He's a very thoughtful person. Um, I was very sorry I couldn't join you for this interview, but it was such a privilege to hear it. I'm sure the listeners will enjoy it. We'll be back with you afterwards to wrap up, but hope you enjoy the conversation. Tom, and maybe it would be helpful to name him by name. This is David Wallace Wells. <laughs> that Tom is... I knew I'd forgotten uh, something. <laughs> David it's not just a kind Wells. of him... The, the, un, yeah, the unnamed author of Uninhabitable Earth. No, indeed, David Wallace-Wells. All right, all right. I, yeah, I'm getting much better at this podcasting thing, obviously. <laughs> You're out of practice, <laughs> dude. Here's the interview. David, thank you very much for joining us today on our podcast, Outrage and Optimism. And, you, you know, David, I was thinking this morning, I would love to be a fly on the wall of your thinking right now. <laughs> I'm really yeah. interested, David, in hearing from you on the role of fear. If there is a predominant sentiment and, um, and I, I, you know, I have you in my mind as the master of fear. Um, <laughs> and, and I would just love to hear from you on the role of fear in mobilizing governments, in mobilizing individual behavioral changes. I mean, everything that is going on right now, I would say basically it's fear, isn't it? It's fear of imminent danger. How, what are you thinking? Can I be a fly on your mental wall? <laughs> well, it's hard for me to wrap my head around um, the coronavirus crisis generally. It seems to me so complicated and diffuse and sort of all-encompassing. And while I, when I first sort of started writing and thinking about climate change, I had some of the same intuitions about climate as I do now about COVID-19. I also understood, I think, pretty quickly that you know climate was a prism through which all of modern life would pass. And I could also sort of see that prism. And with the coronavirus, um, I'm having a harder time getting to that place. I'm seeing, I'm following threads this way and that and um, finding myself sometimes in kind of contradictory positions from one minute to the next. You know, I've, I've, I've done a lot of work on climate the last couple of years that has, I think, rightly positioned me as a kind of an alarmist, someone also who's skeptical of large scale structural change, at least on the timelines that we we need it to happen um, to avert catastrophic warming. And I, I wrote a few weeks ago um, about the experience of this Harvard epidemiologist named Eric Feigelding, who in late January wrote a kind of um, alarmist Twitter thread 
building off of some of the early um, academic work that had been done studying the, the shape of the outbreak in China and basically screaming at the top of his lungs saying, this is um, a more infectious disease than I've ever seen in my lifetime. If we don't get a handle on it very aggressively now, we're going to be dealing with something at the scale of the 1918 flu or maybe worse. This is a, you know, this is um, for, for an epidemiologist, this is a, um, the major event of our lifetime. And from a public health perspective, it's probably going to be the defining challenge of um, this generation. And he was, you know, he was, the response to that was quite overwhelming from his colleagues um, who wanted him to be much more careful, much more cautious, and much less alarming in his presentation of the science. And there was a kind of significant um, professional backlash. There was a piece in the Atlantic written about him called something like, this is how um, misinformation spreads on Twitter. And, um, you know, he, he faced some, um, some, he was reproached by some of his um, superiors at Harvard for it. And, you know, here we are a few months later. And if we had all been as alarmed as he was, if Donald Trump was as alarmed as he was, if Emmanuel Macron or, um, you know, <laughs> Uh, if you can imagine such a thing, Jair Bolsonaro was as alarmed as um, as Eric Feigelding was in late January. We would have enacted the measures that we have now enacted a month or two months earlier. And the research on that, on what difference that would make, is unbelievably eye-opening. There are studies showing that if China had responded three weeks earlier and put, it, put it in place a shutdown three weeks earlier... 95% of all the cases they've had would have been eliminated and they may have been able to prevent it from leaving the country at all. So while what we're seeing now is I think an inspiring show of solidarity that is produced by fear, and we should all, I think, learn that lesson when we think about climate change, it's also a reminder that if we had been scared earlier and more alarmed at the outset, we'd be in an even better place than we are today um, when it looks like we're starting to get things under control but getting things under control is at a level of suffering and dying that none of us would have wanted to accept if you had put the question to us three months ago. Well, or, or we we would agree with that, David. But let me, you know, let let, let me look under the hood just a little bit more um, with you because um, we we agree about you know the astonishing show of solidarity with respect to health. And the fact that so many of us are willing to isolate ourselves um, in order to protect ourselves and others, I think, is what, what you're saying. Um, and the fact that governments have been willing to incur these very, very drastic measures, fully well knowing that they would have huge economic impacts. But here's my problem with this. I am frankly... Um, no longer as concerned, and I think that's what I hear from you, no longer as deeply concerned about the health crisis as I am about the knock-on economic crisis, given the fact that 60% of the population of the world are in the informal sector, and that the informal sector has basically gone from puddling along to dropping off from one day to the next. There is just no more informal sector activity. And in particular, that those people who are in the informal sector basically live from day to day or from week to week. And now they have no income. And of course, there is some 
informal sector in the global north, as you called it, but most of them are in the global south. And furthermore, even those people who do have a salaried job in the global south will be hugely affected by this. So, you know, the solidarity around taking care of our health and each other's health is there. Is the same solidarity, can we be as confident that once we get over the first big hump, which is to control the propagation of the virus and the health crisis, the second hump that is going to be much more difficult and much more demanding and challenging and and, and damaging in the global south than in the global north is going to be the economic crisis. Will we be equally as you know, as enwrapped in solidarity then? Well, frankly, I doubt it. Um, I think that, you know, the one of the horrible lessons of climate change for me is that um, the differential impacts of warming, which um, punish people in the global south much more intensely than those in the global north, are exacerbated by the differences in sympathy Um among those in the global north who have many of the necessary resources to, exactly. to fight climate change for the people who yeah. are suffering Or to the fight most. the health crisis, same thing. Right. So I think we're likely to see a, the same pattern playing out um, with the coronavirus. And um, I would like to see that change. Um, going forward, you know, I have to say I've been surprised to this point, as I said earlier, as, at how much solidarity has been shown and how much concern for the health of others. Um, but I, I don't, especially if we're talking about, um, a story that will be playing out over the course of a year or 18 months, I, I doubt that we'll see this level of concern. Um, on the other hand, I would just say, you know, the most effective thing we could have done in helping those who will soon be suffering in the Southern hemisphere and around the equator from coronavirus would have been to get a handle on it as quickly as possible. So if we had taken as dramatic action as we could have possibly imagined in early January or even late December in China, not waiting until late January, not waiting in other parts of the world until um, deep into February and, and into March, um, the ultimate, you know, the ultimate shape of the disease would be a lot different and mm-hmm. the impact all around the world would be much smaller. Um, David, can I just ask you a question about that? Because I'm... Mm-hmm. Timing, mm-hmm. right? Timing in the response to climate change is also absolutely critical. There's nothing as important as, well, time and scale. Um, same thing as the coronavirus. And sooner is always right? better than later. Sooner is always yeah. better. Prevention is always better than curing. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, you the same argument that you have made for coronavirus, absolutely the same argument we can make for climate change. Had we started reducing emissions when we first understood that we were heading toward a crisis, we would actually be in a much better shape. So what what do we learn from this? I mean, this, this is very present experience for us right now, right? And I think we're all appraised of the fact that sooner is better, um, and that prevention is better than curing. So it's a very, very present lesson that we are learning. Is that something that is applicable? Do you think we have the capacity to take that lesson from where we are right now and apply it to climate in an effective way? Well, one perverse aspect of this is that we are now at a place with climate change where I think some amount of meaningful prevention is possible 
for the nations of the global north. It is already the case that most of the nations in the global south, and especially around the equator, are already suffering quite intensely from climate change. And so there we have to think about mitigating, limiting the amount of damage that's done, but we also have to think about how to adapt and prepare and help those people live relatively comfortable, relatively prosperous, relatively healthy lives in spite of of um, of the warming that they're already experiencing. I do think that there are some lessons and some encouraging signs for people hoping for dramatic climate action out uh, coming out of the corona crisis. Um, I do think in places like the U.S. especially, it does really vividly illustrate how much more open our political landscape really is when we allow ourselves to think ambitiously and dramatically and with real moral urgency. The amount of changes that have been instituted, even if only temporarily, in countries of the West over the last few weeks, obviously dwarf what any anybody ever thought was possible to do, even on incredibly long timescales, um, to deal with climate change. And yet we've done them very quickly. Now, I don't think they are going to be comfortably permanent measures, but as a sign of how quickly we can move when we do want to move, they're a reminder that we are capable of enormous mm-hmm. change yeah. when we choose to try to bring about that change. But how we bring about that change and what choices we make, especially when we're on the other side of this crisis, is to me very much an open question. And I'm not all that optimistic about how we answer it. You know, my experience is, um, you know, it's most, my understanding is most informed by the experience of the U.S. And in the U.S., we have a long history of incredible concern or even concern trolling, I would say, about deficit spending and the size of the, um, of the, of the federal debt. Um, we are likely to emerge in 2021, possibly with a new Democratic president, conceivably, although it's not at all any kind of safe bet, with the support of both houses of Congress. Um, and yet, having come off a year in which the federal government spent a literally unprecedented amount of money, multiples more than they spent in t- 2009. Um, and I'm not sure what the political appetite will be there to engage in um, large-scale policy innovation of any kind, let alone on climate, which has already, you know, because of a generation of sort of disinformation, um, is understood by many parts of the voting public as involving a trade-off between economic growth and climate action. Um, I think it's possible that the experience of the next year teaches the American public and indeed um, the world at large that um, deficit spending in times of emergency is necessary and not something we need to worry about nearly as much as we worried about it in decades past. I think in general, the economic conventional wisdom is moving in that direction already. But I worry that some of these old habits and old habits of mind die hard and that we'll find ourselves in the aftermath of this crisis kind of exhausted by what it took to get us out of it and feeling like our resources have been exhausted too. And what that means for climate action is, I think, quite scary. Now, on the other hand, you could imagine the response to coronavirus encoding a lot of climate response as well. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was just going (laughs) to ask you about that, Dave. That's the only way to do it, isn't it? 
Well, I, I think in a, in a vacuum, absolutely, you'd want to say, okay, we're going to be spending X amount of dollars or X amount of euros doing stimulus spending because the economy is not working and nobody can have a job. We can say, okay, well, we'll put these people to work building out a new electric grid. We'll put these people to work um, you know, building out new um, solar fields and wind power um, plantations and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, that is possible, but it is in my mind, um, determined at a national level, not an international level by domestic politics. Yes. And here in the U S we're going to be, we're Mm -hmm. going to be writing those stimulus bills with a Republican president and a Republican Mm -hmm. Senate. And even in those parts of the world where leader leadership is considerably, um, more progressive at the moment, there are still some concerns and, and, um, so sort of road roadblocks and barriers to the kind of ultimate aggressive climate action being enacted as part of this program. You know, I think there are some signs of hope. I, you know, I imagine that i actually don't know the details, but I imagine that, you know, the response that Jacinda Aheron will be putting together in New Zealand will be, will be quite, uh, quite exciting. Um, just to name one world leader who I think is very much on the right page on all of this stuff, but this is a global problem, which we have to solve globally. And several of the biggest players, um, the US and China, who make up together more than 40% of global fossil fuel emissions, have both already um, rolled back environmental regulations in an effort to try to stimulate the economy um, you know, in the, in the face of this um, economic pandemic crisis. That's a bad portent for what other nations of the world will do. But even taken just on the basis of those two countries, I think it's, um, it's quite bad news. Now, in the US, that perspective, that approach could change as soon as uh, next January. But January is relatively far, yep. far away. And it's not at all certain that we'll be um, living in the U.S. under a, um, a, you know, a different president. Um, and obviously, we know that in China will be um, China will be living under the same leadership that they're living under now. Mm. How do you see these questions? Well, no, I, I, we ag- we agree with you, and I I wonder. I mean, delightfully, delightfully, the UK and EU are doing exactly the opposite, right? They are already preparing their stimulus right. packages, and I'm sure Paul can give us more details on that. Um, Paul, how how is this working on the other side of the Atlantic? Well, Christiana, thank you. And and David, you know, uh, we we we've had a great tradition in the UK of having a, a like a sort of you know sort of a bipartisan consensus on climate change. So we've got some great stuff going on. I mean, one particular aspect of this crisis that I think is really interesting uh, is uh, is our poor prime minister is actually in the intensive care unit, and that kind of brings home you know there's not this massive gap between policy and the problem when you know the the leader of the government is essentially uh, you know suffering the problem. Lot personally, can I ask you, David, the name of that uh, epidemiologist who rang the alarm? What was their name? Uh, his name is Eric, and his last name is hyphenated Feigl Ding F E I G L dash D I. I put it to you, David, that you are him. Yeah, that with your fantastic book, The Uninhabitable Earth, you actually have been doing that, right? You've rung the alarm, um, so I can imagine your your heart is with that individual quite strongly, right? Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's interesting. I, I wrote an article in 2017, which was explicitly about worst case scenarios on climate change. And in the aftermath of that article, I, I, I got a lot of flack from scientists and journalists and climate advocates um, on a couple of different points. Um, 
that some, some took issue with some of my presentation of the science, but we actually, within a few days, we published a fully annotated version of the article that showed where everything had come from and sort of answered those, those questions. But then we had a sort of a, a longer debate about whether it was responsible um, to talk in alarmist terms about climate or whether it was more um, effective to emphasize the optimistic end of the end of the spectrum. I know this is something all of you have thought about as well. Um, and my own feeling about that is, you know, everybody's going to respond to this crisis, climate crisis, in different ways. Um, they, some of us, are primarily scared. <laughs> um, it's certainly the, the the motivation, the emotion that brought me um, to the subject was fear. Um, and I think we know from a lot of a lot of um, from our experience with environmental advocacy and policy history, that fear can be a motivating force um, for public action and public concern. On top of which, you know, the truth is the science on climate change is alarming. And as a journalist who takes his, um, who thinks his main job is informing the public and reflecting his understanding of the subjects he's writing about, it felt to me like if I wasn't alarming my readers, given how scary the science I was reading was, I wasn't doing my job. And in 2017, that was a little bit of a, um, a controversial position for someone writing about climate, and I did get a fair amount of flack for it and, and ended up in a bunch of debates with some quite impressive and important people. Um, by the time my book came out in 2019, I actually think the, sort of, the tide had turned in a quite significant way for a number of reasons. Um, there's the major UN report, the 1.5 degree report, which took a much more alarmist tone than any report like it had taken before. There was the start of the um, global protest movements, um, you know, the, the climate, climate strikes by, um, by youths, but also others. There's more um, extreme protest movements like Extinction Rebellion. Um, and there was, I think, maybe most notably, finally we were starting to see extreme weather unmistakably affected by climate change um, coming through in nations of Western Europe and the U.S. So we saw the California wildfires. We saw extreme heat waves in Europe. And Australia. Yeah, well, that, that came later and was even more even more dramatic. Those fires dwarf the things that we thought we, we should have been scared about in California. Um, but absolutely, it's, it's, been, it's been off the charts. And I think that that extreme weather has made it almost impossible to think about climate without thinking like an alarmist. And as a result, even by the time my book was published, which is only 18 months after I'd written that original article, I think that um, the job of raising alarm and the function, the value of alarmism um, had come to look quite different to the people who had been much more cautious about mm -hmm. it a year or two earlier. Yeah. And I, f I feel the same way about er Eric, the, you know, the Eric Fargolding, the epidemiologist in January, he seemed like he was a nutcase um, alarmist. And by March, you know, he's uh, he's basically had the foresight that almost no one else in, in the West um, was able to muster. Very interesting. Um, David, that, um, that brings me actually to our last question that I'm going to be a little bit roundabout uh, in, in delivering to you because I was in Australia just before the, uh, the worldwide lockdown. And so, of course, you know, I heard this argument about Australia is only responsible for 1.3% of the emissions, to which I, I actually think about it a little bit different. Uh, coming from a country that has 0.01% of emissions. <laughs> of course, if every single country argued like that, then we would never do anything. The way I look at it is Australia has now demonstrated with these fires that it is actually one of the most highly vulnerable countries 
to climate change, something that we didn't know before. And so while they are only emitting, obviously without their exports, 1.3% uh, of the world's emissions, they're actually one of the greatest beneficiaries of global climate response. And if we were to say, right, actually, Australia, sorry, but since you're only emitting 1.3, you can only have 1.3% of the benefits. Well, that's not the way it's going to be, right? We will all we all be benefited in, in irre irrelevant of how much we are emitting if we respond to climate in a, in a timely fashion. So the reason why I brought that different perspective is the following, David. If we want to be very frank, and I think this is the moment to do it, <laughs> you have been criticized for being overly fatalistic and using fear as a motivating force. We have been criticized for being overly optimistic and using, you know, a promising vision of the future as our motivating force. Now, here we are, right, faced with reality. Um I would say that the fear that we have had, all of us, over the past few weeks has been an incredibly powerful motivating force short term. Look where we're all sitting, everybody behind their four walls. Now, the question that I honestly cannot answer and I would love you to answer for us is, do you think that fear and alarm can also be a long-term motivating factor. Because the fact is that the time scale with which we will address the health crisis and in fact even the economic disaster that comes as a knock-on effect is far shorter than the time period that we will have to have sustained response on climate change in order to be effective. So, Again, we come back to our topic of time, right? Can fear mm -hmm. and can alarm be a long-term effective motivating factor? And I ask this of, with huge respect to you of the master of fear. Can we do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, my answer is that um, on no timescale do I think that fear should be the only, um, the only messaging strategy or the only... Um, the only form of public communication. Um, we always need to be talking about what can be averted, what can be restored, what can be secured. I think that's vital, even at the you know talking about a two week or a two month timeline, um, but certainly on the on the scale of of two decades or two centuries, which is the kind of thing we're thinking about with climate change. But I do think that even on those longer timescales, we need to keep in mind what is possible and what is quite scary about that possible future. Mm -hmm. Because what I worry about as much as the lack of public concern or lack of public motivation, lack of political energy drive to drive um, climate action is the social phenomenon of normalization. Mm -hmm. That is a sort of a horrifying response to have when in fact we have thousands more people dying every day than the day before. And even my own reflex towards normalization, I think I find kind of morally abhorrent. But I spent some time last spring in California in the aftermath of their horrifying 2018 fire season. And I spoke with a lot of people who, you know, I went out there thinking I was going to be reporting a story that was essentially a postcard from our climate future when many more people would be crippled with climate anxiety and really deeply worried about whether the place they had made their lives was a place that they could continue to live. And in fact, what I found much, much more than that were people who said things like, 
we've always had fires in California. This is normal. Mm -hmm. And I would say, no, 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 but the fires in LA last year were twice as big as the next biggest one in LA history. And, you know, they've grown fivefold since 1970 in California generally. Um, I met a woman who, who lived, who lived in Malibu long enough that she had lived through nine fires. And I said to her, how, how could you possibly continue to live on this landscape and know that that is going to happen again at some point? And she said, you live in New York, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, you guys had Sandy. And, you know, she was right. <laughs> and one of the ways I think we can guard against normalization and guard against the impulse that we all have to adjust our expectations as we go along is by keeping in mind the longer time frame and keeping in mind the more dramatic possible outcomes um, that are you know are conceivable on that time frame so that we're not always just saying oh well you know maybe next year rainfall is going to be 3% worse we're talking about 20 years from now rainfall being 40% right. worse or um, hurricanes being 50% more intense or more common beyond all of which i would just say you know you all probably have a slightly more optimistic read on what's possible. But the way I look at the timeline that we have and the amount of decarbonization that we need to do, I don't think it's possible that we avoid two degrees Celsius of warming. And everything I know about what that level of warming would mean is on its own deeply alarming, which means since I come to the subject, I'm now starting to think of myself a little bit as a kind of a climate advocate, but mostly I think still think of myself as a journalist and an observer. And if what we know about what I think is an inevitable level of warming is terrifying, then I think it's responsible to process that alarm, process those scary futures, and do what we can to communicate them. So at the very least, we have a collective understanding about the future that we might be heading into, in part to help motivate us to avoid it and make other choices, but in part just as a matter of public information. I think that generally speaking, very few people on the planet, a very thin sliver of the public, um, understands just what is in store for us. Yeah. And I think, first of all, if they did know that they would want to do more to prevent it, but also just in the sense of reckoning with their the future of their own lives, it's useful to communicate to that, that yeah. to them. No, we we totally agree with you on on that one, David. And I guess the way that we have resolved this is actually to try to paint a very, very vivid picture of both realities, right? The terrible reality. That's one of the great things about your book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the book, we, you know, we write these two chapters. One reality is the terrible reality that we will all be living under if we do not do our uh, our job ASAP. And then, of course, there is the other possibility. And what we are trying to motivate people to do is to be aware of both, uh, really apprised of both, and force the choice, force the decision, so that no one should say 30 years from now, oh, well, we landed here, but we didn't know that we could have done something differently. Um, so we agree with you actually on the importance of showing people, uh, the terrible future that we could have had. And I guess we're just a tad more confident, uh, that, that humanity still does have the capacity to, to make a right choice, but let's see mm. where we go. Let's hope. Yeah, let's, let's see hope. where we go. David, thank you so much. This has really been a very thoughtful conversation. Sobering, indeed, um, but very, very thoughtful and uh, very much appreciated. Um, and I, I just think we should continue to work together 
uh, from different perspectives in order to, you, you know, oh, you know, you know, David, I, I think in little pictures and I just thought of a huge herd of um, cattle or sheep or whatever that are being herded by two dogs, one on one side and one on the other. <laughs> so, you know, you can herd from one side, we can herd from the other, and then hopefully we will go through the gate in time. And, and David, David, let me just also say that uh, you know I, I think at the moment when the uh, when the world is truly feeling its se- a vulnerability, a sense of vulnerability it's not felt before, particularly the industrialized world. Thank you so much for ringing the alarm so clearly and so loudly, and uh, and for your leadership. It's it's really greatly appreciated. Well, I'm I'm in awe of all of you, and just glad to be in conversation with you. So I hope we can talk again in the future and continue work work to make this a better world. Indeed. Thank you very much, David. Good to talk to you today. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. We've wanted for a long time to speak to David. How wonderful that you guys got to sit down and talk with him. What a thoughtful and just reflective person on this whole situation that we find him and deeply responsible in terms of his role as a journalist. What did you, what did you leave that conversation with? I mean, um, you know, it was a while ago. Um, it was it was a reminder for me um, that during the the COVID crisis, our prime minister was in the intensive care unit. You know, um, very very ill. Um, so it just it was kind of a it took me back to a you know a slightly more intense time uh, of of the COVID crisis. Not to say that there aren't aren't people suffering now and the second wave and all the rest of it. And our heart goes out to the United States, but. Um, there was something visceral about that particular um, uh, memory for me. But just generally, um, I thought it was quite interesting, the duty of a journalist. Should journalists be scaring people? Um, There was a a famous TV presenter in the UK um, called Peter Sissons uh, from from Channel 4 News. And I saw him once saying, look, if if I'm telling people what the news is and and they're kind of committing suicide, that's my job. You know, I'm, I'm here to tell people what the news is. Um, it's quite difficult to process that. Um, I, I do think that uh, that uh, David has done a fantastic job in in helping us kind of guard against normalisation and and you know he he does make this point uh, which which I, I I said before the interview only a very thin slither of the planet really know what's in store and I think that's the key. Uh, we've got to kind of find a way for everyone to uh, kind of just you know take this on board and reprioritize. Hmm. The feeling that comes up for me after listening to this interview again is admiration of courage. And courage because I think it takes a heck of a lot of courage to either be alarmist and truly deeply concerned and communicate fear about climate change, or to communicate hope about climate change. Either side of that spectrum, it takes courage to take a public stand at either side. The easy piece is to just stay somewhere in the middle and go, yeah, 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 well, I know, you know, things are happening, but so what kind of thing? You know, the indifference Mm. to um, to the uh, fate of humankind and the fate of the planet. And it takes courage not to just disappear into, the, I, I think, a very broad space for indifference and take a stand. And, and he does that so eloquently yeah. and so compellingly, right? I mean, 
both in his interview as well as in the book. Um, and, and also, I have to say, for those of us who choose to take the other side of the, uh, of the gamut, if we didn't have people like David Wallace-Wells raising the voice and the flag of alarm, we could not take a hopeful position because it would be completely irresponsible. We actually are mutually dependent on mm. each other mm. to be able to communicate both sides of that gamut. And, um, and, and hopefully, you know, most people would be exposed to both sides of the gamut and then can draw their own conclusions. But, um, you know, fundamentally, those of us who believe that action is actually more uh, likely to happen with the pull of optimism and of hope rather than with the push of fear and alarmism, we depend on the push side. Because honestly, it would be completely irresponsible to think that, that optimism and hope and, you know, and, and, um, and positive thinking is going to be what gets us out of this. We actually totally need both. Well, and so there we are. That's why this podcast is called Outrage and Optimism. <laughs> Amen. So I, I'm reminded, and I was reminded as I listened to the interview of um, something you said, Christiana, in an earlier podcast, actually, where you said that your favorite definition of intelligence was understanding two opposing perspectives and understanding them both to be true and accepting them both at the same time. Because the point you made at the end of that conversation that he is known for presenting a, uh, an alarmist perspective and you or we are known for presenting an optimistic perspective. And I listened to his interview and I didn't disagree with a word he said. Yeah, correct. correct. And I didn't disagree also with the other perspective that we can have a gritty, realistic determination to rise to meet this challenge and change that trajectory. And I think that that definition that we need to hold both of those both. if we ignore what David is saying and is so brilliantly explained in his book um, and echoed here, we are entirely abdicating our responsibility as human Completely. beings yes. at this moment. At the same time, you know, we feel we have made a choice that we want to face this moment with a sense of gritty, determined optimism because we feel that that gives us the best chance to be everyone that we want to be at this moment and meet this challenge in the best way that we can. Others may not make that choice, but the reality has to be faced and we all have to find our way through that. And I thought, actually, I don't think he'd disagree with what I just said at all. I thought he was very, very reflective about all yes. of that as well. Agree. Yeah. Yeah, I know I've said it before and I'll say it again. We have to define and resolve paradoxical duality and we will. Uh, and, you know, thinking of those, you know, that has to be your third tweet, Paul. <laughs> define and resolve paradoxical reality duality it'll, be, it'll go it'll go wild yeah duality it will go wild hold on paul i think actually <laughs> what tom and i are saying now we're going to go into the philosophical part of this conversation is not resolving the duality but actually holding it in the same space yeah yeah, but I've learned just to talk rubbish in moments like this. So actually the 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 holding of that duality is the resolution of it. Now that may not be true, but if I say well, it in you. this kind of voice, you may believe it's true. Thank um, you, Dickinson. You know, we need to build a house where there is room enough for all to have this great move forward into broad sunlit uplands. And if we hold those positive visions, they shall come. 
It's a fascinating question as to whether Paul knows what he's talking about, isn't it? It's not a question of knowing what you're talking about, but just continuing to talk onwards and onwards. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I thought that was amazing. And we've wanted to have David for such a long time. And I'm sure we'll have others who present that challenging view of reality. And we should listen to them and we should pay every attention. We should have scientists on because... There's nothing in there that we disagree with. Paul, you want to say one more thing? Yeah, yeah, no, I would just a big shout out for what you said earlier, Christiana, about um us being dependent upon uh David and 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 sort of the, you know, the, in in the whole kind of messaging wars and what's the best way to talk about climate change. It's it's kind of very complicated and people got different points of view, but I think that uh you you're the, you know, fantastically um optimistic uh communicator, Christiana, who I've seen you inspire vast crowds. And yet, at the same time, you acknowledge your debt to those who, you know, have to kind of build the the, the foundation that 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 flower will will grow. Do you grow flowers out of foundations? Um, that <laughs> or fertile <laughs> soils, anyway. The, who would have turned the soil that 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 beautiful uh, uh, flowers will grow from? You know, just as a um, a fun aside, yesterday I recorded an interview with David. In this case, he was interviewing me for a podcast that he's participating in and that will be um, made public sometime in the near future. But the fun thing is that he was interviewing me with very much the similar questions, at least the same spirit with which we interviewed him. Hmm. Um, But I was giving my version of the answers, right? And at the end of this, um, David said, well, you know, Christiana, I'm actually feeling much more optimistic. And I'm like, oh my God, please don't do that. (laughs) We need you. (laughs) We need you to stay where you are. (laughs) We should have some sort of alarm system, actually. If David gets too optimistic, then we're going to have to find Christiana getting, you know, going deeper into the cave. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Earth fine, actually. And, you know, How to Paint Model Soldiers by David Wallace-Wells, you know, book two. Well, when when his... um, it's not his podcast but when that podcast is made public and comes out we will definitely let our listeners know we'll let you know yeah okay so i have to say the other thing that i was very impressed with when i was away was was the music i think the music is going great on this podcast Mm. i think it's adding a huge amount how are you guys enjoying it i have a comment to make on that but let me allow paul to speak first Hmm. well i would say uh i am completely been in love with almost all forms of music since I can remember and you are the music whilst the music lasts and I love to be taken to all these fantastic places so I'm I'm loving it right I'm also enjoying it however I have noticed Mr. Tom Rivet mm. Karnak <laughs> your brilliant idea has actually made this podcast stretch way over one hour. And I do remember that way back when, more than a year ago, we started this conversation that we haven't finished yet about what is the ideal length of a podcast. So I actually think, and I've always been more for short podcasts. You've always been more for long podcasts. If it were up to you, we would do seven hour podcasts, I'm sure. 14. 14. Hours. Hours every day, probably. Anyway, Tom, I just I just wanted to be very upfront about the fact that 
if this was your backhanded way of stretching the time of the podcast, I actually recognized your little strategy. It <laughs> happens to be the addition of musing happens to be something that I really enjoy, but I have noticed that you have, at least for the time being, won the discussion of having <laughs> podcast. Well, you know, it's very funny now. because... I, I must know you very well, Christiana, but I entirely anticipated this concern and I have some numbers uh, to share with uh. you. Yeah, so um, so last week the podcast was one hour and 14 minutes long with a six-minute song and I had nothing to do with that. So you were in the chair, were you not, which was the longest podcast we've had. <laughs> so when I was away, the podcast got at least 10% longer. Yes, you see, Christiana. I've been living in terror. <laughs> you point that finger, podcasts. Christiana. You point that finger, Christiana. And do you know what happens? Is it comes back and it points at you. But what I would who say. Who designed this, you know, music edition? Who? I don't know. Was, but I, I, I'm just pointing out, you know. It was. That it it's was. Now, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's now been a four-minute conversation about how long the podcasts are, just to, just as a as a reflection. Yeah. <laughs> we should, I wonder if we should get a vote. This is this is a question. I wonder if we should get a vote from our listeners. Do you want a podcast that goes over an hour, or oh, do you yeah, want a good podcast point. that's under an hour? Would yeah. I be able to see the results before I pass them on to everybody else, so we can just so I can organize them? Yeah, please um, write to it, Paul it, at cdp.net. How about, how about you tweet? <laughs> yeah, Paul, you can, tweet the results. You can results. tweet Paul. <laughs> I, if I get more than a hundred responses, I will make my third tweet. Now, uh, if I if I could just observe one one thing, which is that uh, I've actually forgotten what it is, but I'm about to remember. Oh yes, so we know from our algorithm that many many uh, of our listeners are either in the gym or they're running or walking, and therefore the longer the podcast is, the better and better shape people are going to get into. Just think of it that way. Nice. That's an angle I had not thought of yet. That's a very good Neither point. Neither yeah. I. Yeah. Right. People, this week we have Billy Bragg. He's Who famous. Is just incredibly famous yeah, and just, I know. you know, wonderful kind of political singer, a songwriter, uh, a great privilege and honor to have him. So Billy wrote this song. It's called King Tide and the Sunny Day Flood. And the motivation for writing it was a report that he read about a phenomenon in Florida whereby seasonal tides were causing low-lying areas of Miami to be flooded due to rising sea levels inhibiting the normal drainage of water. The colloquial term for that situation is a sunny day flood, and it's not the result of a storm surge. So he was very inspired by a particular phenomenon to go ahead and write this. And he also, he's a really deep thinker about the role of the artist. He, he wrote to us that his perspective is that the role of the artist is to offer a different perspective on events, to encourage the listener to engage in the issue at hand and help to focus on solidarity and activism. He has just been at this for so long. He's such a deep thinker. He's such an amazing artist. I think this is a beautiful song. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening this week. We so appreciate you participating, listening each week, joining us. I'm thrilled to be back. You guys did a great job in my absence. I'm, ter- you know, appalled to say, but it's great to be back with you. Appalled. Uh, welcome back, Tom. Welcome back. <laughs> welcome. We missed you, Tom. Yeah. Thank you very much. Enjoy the song. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. 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 Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could save the world and all Simply by collecting up tin cans and empty bottles We all want to believe it's true 
no matter what you do So long as we continue to burn our way through fossils Now it should come as no surprise To hear about the ocean's rise Polar caps are melting with every year that the planet warms People have to understand We're gonna feel it far inland It's gonna shift the seasons And supercharge the storms The king tide is a-coming The king tide is a-coming The king tide is a-coming Bringing flooding on a sunny day The king tide is a-coming can't you hear the meltwaters running? The king tide is a-coming, gonna wash everything away And you know, the oceans, they connect us all No one can just build a wall We have to work together We can't do this on our own To think that you can stand aside Nothing more than foolish pride Cause everyone's a libertarian Till the brown water floods their home Now you may live on higher ground Feeling like you're safe and sound Thinking as you look around This is your lucky day Everyone beneath the sky Soon be looking for somewhere high and dry Nothing you can ever do Will keep them all at bay Because the king tide is a-coming The king tide is a-coming The king tide is a-coming Bringing flooding on a sunny day The king tide is a-coming can't you hear the meltwaters running? The king tide is a-coming, gonna wash everything away. The king tide is a-coming, and we have to act today. Hey everyone, Clay again. This week, before I close with the credits, I wanted to take a moment to honor the life of Congressman John Lewis, who was a civil rights icon, the conscience of Congress, and a vocal champion for climate action. Mr. Lewis just passed away this month after a battle with cancer at the age of 80. The famous March on Washington 1963 is largely remembered for the optimism in the civil rights movement that emerged from Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. But if both outrage and optimism were represented in speeches that day, the outrage, or as Christiana also describes it, blessed anger, was voiced from the speech John Lewis gave about demanding freedom, equality, and justice. Not eventually, not when it's convenient for some people, not in the near future, but right now. Now, Mr. Lewis lived his life committing his body to his ideals, pursuing the fulfillment of the idea that all are created equal. And when I say committing, I mean nearly losing his life on many occasions during nonviolent protests when he was beaten by segregationists, white supremacists, and the police. This level of physical and psychological resistance did not stop Mr. Lewis from continuing on, and his outrage led him to a full life of activism and public service. He served in the U.S. House of Representatives for 17 terms, 
1987 till 2020. As I was reflecting on his life, I remembered about 10 years ago watching the ceremony when he was awarded the 2010 Presidential Medal of Freedom by then-President Barack Obama, who, at the very end of his speech, just before awarding Mr. Lewis the medal, said this about him. And generations from now, when parents teach their children what is meant by courage, the story of John Lewis will come to mind. An American who knew that change could not wait for some other person or some other time, whose life is a lesson in the fierce urgency of now. This urgency, John penned in an essay he wrote shortly before his death to be published upon the day of his funeral, which was yesterday, Thursday. He wrote, when you see something that is not right, you must say something. You must do something. The injustices that he bore witness to compelled him to say something now, to do something now, to get himself into good trouble now. May we have the courage and the fearlessness to do the same. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We're tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. There you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. The song you just heard was a live performance of King Tide and the Sunny Day Flood by Billy Bragg. Check the show notes for a link to Billy's website and be sure to watch the lyric video for this song. It has some unbelievable cinematography. Recommend it. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell and executive produced by Marina Mancilia German. Our team is amazing. It's Sarah Law, it's Katie Bradford, it's Lara Richardson, it's Sophie McDonald, it's Fran Newman, it's Sarah Thomas, and it's Sharon Johnson. And of course, our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet-Karnak. A special thanks to our musical guest this week, Billy Bragg. We're getting these really powerful, intimate live performances on the podcast, and that's thanks to Adam Maestro and the team at So Far Sounds. We're proud to be partnering with So Far Sounds to bring you these special performances. Right now, So Far Sounds is raising $250,000 for So Far artists whose livelihoods have been affected by COVID-19. And I said this last week, 100% of the proceeds go directly to artists and they need us right now. You can check out more live performances and support musicians today by going to SoFarSounds.com. And thank you to our guest this week, David Wallace-Wells. I've put a link in the show notes to David's book, The Uninhabitable Earth. I've read it. It's a phenomenal book. And I've also put a link to the original article he wrote uh, that we mentioned in the podcast. So check that out as well. Okay, if you're listening to this podcast and it's Friday, July 31st, 2020, and you have not nominated us for the People's Choice Podcast Awards, it is time to do so. Podcastawards.com takes 30 seconds. Click the link below. Oh, 
uh, please, I'm, I'm supposed to say, <laughs> I'm supposed to say, please, please nominate us. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm on the social media team with Sophie and Sharon and Laura, and we're creating and publishing content that keeps you informed and optimistic about what is going on in climate at Global Optimism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'll see you online. And if you love the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating. Take a screenshot of your review, tweet it at us, and we'll shoot you a message back. Simon, this past week, sent me a screenshot of his review. Made my day. Thanks, Simon. Okay, next week, we will be back in your feed in full effect. The gang is all here. Welcome back, Tom. See you next week.